Hello and welcome back to the Archives of Diseases of Childhood evidence-based section, the Archimedes portion. Yes, last month we told you all about how to do an Archimedes and what it was all about, and this month we are back into the thick of it, with a little thing about critical appraisal and understanding the evidence that we're looking at, and then two brief sort of case report and evidence summaries, looking this time at the heart of the matter, because they're both like cardiology sort of Anyway, uh, yeah, stand-up comedy wasn't really the thing, but evidence-based medicine is. And so, let's leap into that whole process of doing evidence-based child health. Asking a question, going out there and acquiring some information that might answer it, appraising it, weighing it for its strengths and its weaknesses, really, but then putting it all together and saying, how do we apply this in practice? And that is what evidence-based medicine's all about. Without further ado, let's learn a little more about one particular aspect of this. There's something beguiling about a result where the P is less than 0.05. Something in our inadequate medical statistics training makes us believe that this is a symbol for the truth. We have to resist. Now there is a whole bunch of statistics that deals with knowing on the basis of things that we have known before, the Bayesian statistics, and, we, and we've discussed this in Archimedes back in the past, that the core of it we can all understand. A high potassium coming back from the lab in a child with blocked dialysis tubing is much more likely to be real than the high potassium that came back from a blood sample you squeezed over 15 minutes from the heel of a small child. While it's not quite that simple in reading research papers, there is definitely a value in going into our reading with a sense of what we already understand the truth to be. How likely or not we feel the potential therapy is to be of benefit or the hypothesis is likely to be true on the basis of our knowledge, experience and the other studies that we've heard about that are around the place. And doing that before we look at the analysis. This warning about p-values in particular comes, like many others, with even bigger flags around observational studies. Now, traditional p-values are absolutely brilliant when it comes to describing probabilities of an event occurring by chance or by chance beyond, but around well-constructed studies with minimal risk of bias in them. You see, they can't overcome the challenges of poor quality data or, or unthinking analysis. But our considered thinking can do that. Our understanding and our interpretation can help us take that p-value but put it into the context of the data and the study to really understand what the truth is and not be beguiled by the magic. So the first of our heart-based cases comes from Victoria Curry at the Birmingham Wibbingham Children's Hospital, Andrew Tagg, uh, the Western Hospital in the University of Melbourne, and Constantino Canaris at the Cambridge University Medical School and Intensive Care Unit at the Queen Mary University of London. A big mixture of people across the world coming to ask the question, what information can we use to help determine the futility in paediatric patients presenting in traumatic cardiac arrest. 
Now, this is clearly an extremely unusual event, but the scenario is of a two-year-old who presents to the ED with 10 minutes of pulseless arrest, having been hit by a car, and clearly a traumatic cardiac arrest. As the child comes in and ET is in place, bilateral finger pharacostomies have been performed, there's a pelvic binder on, tibial intraosteous axis has been obtained and he's receiving balanced crystalloids without pre-hospital blood products available. You examine the child and find that both his pupils are fixed and dilated and, as I say, has been without a pulse and receiving CPR for 10 minutes. The team obviously carried on with a number of interventions at this point, but afterwards the clinical question was asked, in a paediatric patient in traumatic cardiac arrest, are there any clinical or other markers that can help in assist determining futility, aiding clinicians to stop resuscitation? They went away and they looked in all sorts of places, Medline, Embase, Cochrane, trying to find data on patients under the age of 18 needing CPR following a traumatic cardiac arrest. There wasn't an awful lot of information out there, but what they pulled together was largely a group of case series, up to 200 and odd of them had been pulled together over the course of many years, and then some work that had been pulling together the information from a whole bunch of experts to try to understand what was going on in the information that was available. As you can imagine in these situations, the data that's collected is largely from what was written down in the paper at the time, trying to do that in the setting of a proper prospective study is extremely difficult when you're looking at less than 15 cases a year in the UK every year. And the overall outcome is very poor with, with children largely not surviving. Pulling together all of the recent information on this, there was a lot of information shown where people had carried on with resuscitation, where had got a return of spontaneous circulation, but largely had a poor outcome. When you pull across all of the data together, you're still left with a very, very similar idea. Survival with neurocognitive outcome of a quality of life is really, really uncommon. The things that make it even less likely to occur are when people have been carrying on CPR for greater than 15 minutes, if there's true asystole and no signs of life at the scene, if the arrest was secondary to a blunt trauma, and if there are evidence of really severe damage like fixed pupils. Because of the sparsity of the data, you can't point to any of these markers to say for certain that any one of them is the right thing to do. It might be, when you put in the other factors from adults and pull it around, that things like a lack of response to life-saving interventions, so a, a, a persistently low entitled CO2, cardiac standstill, even using air, echocardiogram at the bedside, all of those might, might be additional markers of poor outcomes. The clinical bottom line is that there's no definitive marker of futility, but as you would probably expect, longer CPR, certainly over 15 minutes, actual asystole, arrest at the scene, and fixed pupils are all extremely poor outcome markers and could be used to aid that clinical decision and give information to the family.
Our other case comes from Italy, from the departments of uh, psychology, drug research, child health and neurosciences in the University of Florence, from Martina Schiarchia, Iuri Corsini, Michelle Luazzi, Valentina Leonardi, Simone Prasetti, and Carlo Danni. Now, they pulled together a case that presents a little bit more commonly than traumatic cardiac arrest, but to neonatologists, and that is of the preterm infants who've obviously had central lines inserted to aid with various things, and then demonstrating on echocardiography the presence of clots in and around the heart. This case in particular was a 27-week baby that had a central line placed and an echocardiogram on about day 10 showed a right atrial mass with an intracardiac replacement. There was uncertainty as to whether the right thing to do was to just anticoagulate the child, which they did start, but then on re-echoing after having a look and getting them on a decent dose of unfractionated heparin, found the thrombus was increasing inside and starting down and protruding from the atrium into the ventricle. At this point, the team was really wondering, what's the right thing to do? We're in therapeutic zone for anticoagulation. Is it, is it appropriate to use the recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, RT-TPA, which I'll probably call TPA from now on because life's easier that way, in order to sort of blast and dissolve the clot or with all the bleeding difficulties that go with that, is it the right thing to do? Or particularly in a preterm, is it actually more unsafe to do that? That, that clinical question is, is in a very and extremely preterm newborns with intracardiac thrombosis that isn't responding to heparin. So we're in that situation of we've tried just to maintain but not getting there. Is TPA safe and effective? And what dose should be used? So this group went away, they again looked in loads of different places, pulled together 86 different articles from Embase, PubMed, and even used Google Scholar in their uh, article function there to try and get something. They went in and had a look at all the reference lists and found potential for others, as you would expect, and no RCTs were available, but there were retrospective studies and a fair few case series and case reports. 42 of them were looked at in incredible detail, bringing down 12 in total that were possibly there, but then filtered down further uh, in that they were looking for those that were below 32 weeks of age. In total, when pulling all of their studies together, 28 preterm infants were finally included, but the largest of these was only eight infants in this group. Now, nobody's doubting that use of central venous catheters is an absolutely essential thing to do to look after preterm neonates. And what you could do if you see the first signs of a clot is just wait and see what's going to happen or not. You can anticoagulate to see if the heparin will just hold things at bay and then the natural dissolving processes go on. Or do you go in with thrombolysis? Thrombolysis is going to have the risks of bleeding, but also clot dissolving. Oh, and the other option of putting in filters and thrombectomy where they try and pull the clots out themselves, clearly out of the realms of technical possibility in, uh, in extremely preterm neonates.
So with the use of the sort of clock busters that have been done with a whole range of older patients, uh, there is the question about whether you should use them in little ones. The, the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis has birth under 32-week gestation as a contraindication for uh, RT-TPA thrombolysis because of that, that increased risk of bleeding. The ACCP guidelines suggest that in those extreme examples, then potentially you could consider it if there were a high risk of disease progression in terms of thrombotic disease progression, PE and death, but again, very, very nervously so. And so looking at these sorts of things becomes very difficult. Obviously, some people have done it and they've written up their case reports. And we're always a little bit cautious of case reports in Archimedes because it is frequently the case that people write up successful case reports and they don't write up unsuccessful case reports. That is, I suppose, the nature of what we do, isn't it? We, we don't particularly want to go around going, oh, we had this child and we did that and it worked really, really badly, and then put our names to it for the world to see. And so when we examine these sorts of data, we always do it with a slight hint that salt should be involved in large quantities. With 28, though, you're getting beyond the one or two potentials that are out there. And there is, a, a as I say, a, a group of eight that sits there together. The dosing question that people have used is, is broad. People have used it in a sort of a low rising up method or a sort of blast dropping down method. And it's really difficult to say what the right thing to do is. However, the authors of this paper go more along the line of starting on the lowest dose and increasing on the basis of clinical response. And, and I think that sort of makes sense, both from the safety point of view, but also if we're unsure about the value of it. And, and also we're, we're able to look very frequently to see, is it working or not? Then that might be the right way around. I guess there would be clinical situations where you're running into significant problems that you actually want to do it the other way. But again, with lots of informed consent and discussion with the team and with the family. They are absolutely clear that thrombolysis should be reserved in those cases that are unresponsive to all of the conventional therapies and after careful evaluation and discussion of those risks versus benefits. The team have done an extremely good job about trying to bring together the real challenges that are here in use of evidence in rare situations and pulling and synthesizing the difficulties at risk to come up with a very balanced and meaningful conclusion on the basis of the evidence available. It sort of demonstrates to me that evidence-based medicine, whilst it may be put up as a, uh, as a straw figure to be dragged down, claiming it's all about randomised controlled trials, really, really isn't. And evidence-based child health is a superb way of showing how the evidence-based paradigm can be used in this matter. So that's this month's chat, that's this month's questions, that's this month's way of looking at how evidence-based medicine can be used in the treatment of not just hearts, other specialities are available, not just 
do we deal with cardiac issues, but we deal with the whole realm of everything. And if you flick back through the pages of the last few Archimedes, you'll see stuff ranging from well-being, through communication, through therapeutics, prognosis, and yes, some cardiology and quite a lot of neonatology. It's all right. You don't need to be a neonatologist to do Archimedes. Big kids are welcome as well. Where do we go from here? Well, what we need is your questions. We need you to come forward with your uncertainties and show us and tell us what's the right thing to do in these difficult situations that you face on a daily basis. Follow the instructions to authors on the website. Follow our Archimedes podcast on any of the podcatchers that you have out there. Google Play, Spotify, Apple, iTunes. I have no idea what others are available, but please go out, grab it. Talk about it on the social medias. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't. And hopefully we'll be getting your submissions soon. And your stuff too will be being discussed here. And you can teach your granny all about podcasts in order for them to hear about it as well. So until next month, thank you for listening. <laughs>